And I think this is what we're doing in MIF. We're creating our highest potential before we're there. So at the moment in a movie like Interstellar, we're we're talking about what is this space we've discovered. We've only known it's there for a hundred years, really. Radio astronomy, the size of our galaxy and black holes. And we're trying to integrate all of this. And the storyteller kind of has the same choice. Like if I forget the name of the central character, if, if Matthew McConaughey just dies in the vacuum of space at the end of the movie, uh, or if we tell the story of the generations of astronauts who who just die in space or get blown up or irradiated. That's not what we need from the story, though we do have the factual account as well. We need some higher manifestation, and that's what we're doing in Interstellar, is thinking about the possibilities of the transcendent. And there's so many layers of the mythic in there. You have Hans Zimmer's music, the cinematography, uh, you got poetry in there as well. So it comes together all as a, a ritual, really. It's very much like how I imagine the cave paintings of 25,000 years ago. We're basically doing the same mythic ritual of storytelling and music and transformation of the self through the experience. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Deep Talks Exploring Theology and Meaning Making. I'm your host, Paul Anleitner. We're in part four of a series entitled A Quest for Meaning as a Spiritual Species, and today's episode is the second segment of my conversation with Damian Walter, expert in storytelling and modern myth-making. If you haven't listened to part one of this conversation, I really encourage you to go back and listen to that. It would actually be part three in the series, but it's the first segment of my conversation with Damian Walter. Fascinating, and I think... Having that as the context and the backdrop for today's conversation is is really going to be helpful. So go back, take a listen to that before you listen to this one. Damien's podcast, Science Fiction with Damien Walter, has been in the top charts of Apple Podcasts in the UK, and he leads an online community of over 18,000 members interested in science fiction, fantasy, modern myth, I'm delighted to have Damien again for another segment of this conversation, and I, I'm just so happy with the place that we got to in the conversation. Um, it was challenging to me, thought-provoking, really good back and forth, and uh, I think that I think that's heightened by the sense that we don't share the exact convictional location on perhaps a philosophical or theological and religious spectrum, but I think that sort of comparative analysis of assessing the world and our own separate ventures of meaning-making shared together in dialogue makes this conversation all the better. So I know, I'm, I'm confident as you listen today, you're going to find it interesting, intriguing, moving, and I would love to hear back from you. So if you are a supporter on Patreon, you can connect with me in the discussion forum or in our Deep Talks Patreon Discord server. We also have monthly or close to monthly uh, Q&A, live Q&A opportunities. So make sure you stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out more about all that. Again, as always, today's episode and all of our episodes can't happen without the generous support of listeners just like you over on Patreon. I have a goal to hit 200 patrons by the month of March so that I can keep doing my work, not only here, but my writing on Substack and the various YouTube videos that I do as well. 
All of that is without advertisement or like a subscription charge or any of that stuff because I rely on those who look at this and or listen to what I do or watch what I do or read what I do and go, hey, I think this is of value, so I'm going to support it. And uh, that keeps this free of advertisement. I refuse to colonize your attention with ads for any more crap that you don't have any need for. So that's not going to happen if you find this valuable. Just Go on to uh, patreon.com backslash deep talks theology podcast and become a supporter. Again, you can stay tuned to the end of today's episode to find out more about perks and all the other things we're doing in the deep talks community. And with that, let's just jump right into this fascinating dialogue with Damian Walter. I think this is why uh, criticism has a new energy to it at the moment. Because like when when I've been counseled by both of these groups of people at various times, just to use the shorthand, you know, I'm still here. Obviously, I haven't really been been harmed. Um, and as you say, I, I can be disagreeable. And so when people come and comment on my videos, sometimes I will be very rude to them. I response, love it. But... <laughs> I'm sorry. I shouldn't encourage you. Maybe it's I'm living vicariously through you because I go, you know, well, as a pastor, there's these expectations. I have to speak kindly. So when I see somebody just go, that's a stupid comment, I go, that's awesome. <laughs> uh, I, I'm trying to moderate that, though, because that's really my point that, you know, we're we're fortunate. I'm extremely fortunate that I've been able to live a life where I get to think about all of this a lot. So I have well-developed cognitive frameworks for myself that I can fall back into. But for most people, of course, you know, we it's a struggle for most people to get through the day, they're working, and then they, they watch a movie and they talk about it a bit online. So their time to process it is limited. Uh, and then it's a problem that people get drawn to to critics who kind of play on that that oh, that lack of knowledge so it we sells. have yeah it sells of course yeah so you know yeah anger and rage and yeah. all of that stuff is a is a quick way to to build up an audience uh and i think a lot of this culture war seemingly is now being moderated through this act of criticism basically uh and people supporting the critics that they like this is why people have eight thousand dollar a month patreons because we're kind of fighting or, or moderating these these cultural arguments and it's uh, not just entertainment right i mean this is where it becomes yeah. so obvious that it's not entertainment is when mm -hmm. i mean just take something that was just recently in our like enter entertainment culture right so james gunn mm -hmm. is taking over the dc movies Henry Cavill was supposed to come back and play Superman. And there's a lot of people that feel really connected to his portrayal of Superman. There was ob yeah. obviously a lot of people that felt very strongly against it. Um, he's released, you know, from being playing that mm -hmm. role in the future. Yeah. And we're, it's clear we're not talking about um, playing cards at the dinner table. That's like entertainment. Mm -hmm. We are clearly talking about stories that are guiding people's lives. My number mm. one most watched video has not been a conversation I had with Verveke or some theologian or scholar. I wish those were getting more watches. My number one most watched video is on Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice, mm -hmm. a divisive film that has culture war 
implications sure. yeah. on both sides and the people that come and watch these i read some of their comments stuff like you know because i'm focusing on religious symbolism primarily or theological symbolism they go i'm not even religious but these movies mean so much and i really appreciate the way mm. that you've unpacked these ideas and i it was like something in the movies is calling out to them and resonating with them. And not everybody's got the language for it. Cause as you say, mm -hmm. both you and I have been privileged to give our lives to these. We're in distinct fields, but we both are in, mm -hmm. we both spend most of our day in our heads. And that's, um, that's quite a privilege and affordance, but most people don't get to do that. So they go into mm -hmm. the theater, they turn something on Disney plus or Netflix and they feel a resonance within them, but they might not have the language for it. Hmm. But once you start giving it language and once you start seeing people use language to attack it, we're not attacking a movie anymore. Hmm. It's like here in America, you know, here in the Midwest where I live, um, you know, aside from in, you know, city itself if i i am in a suburban context right now my neighborhood is if i went outside in my front yard and burned an american flag i would there'd be a lot of problems with my neighbors now if mm. i went outside and burned a t-shirt that had the colors red white and blue on it but not clearly an american flag people might just go you're weird they're not gonna be offended mm. by it it's because that thing is a symbol of people's deep values. And so yeah, yeah. when we see these culture war arguments over a Marvel movie or a DC movie or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings and Rings of Power, it's clear we're not talking. We're not talking about entertainment anymore. We are talking mm. about these stories on a religious level. And again, by that, I mean, mm. it's addressing people's ultimate concerns and providing for them a guiding story for them to find meaning in life. And that to me, yeah. it's, it just seems obvious. I don't know how people don't see it. <laughs> uh, I, I think in a lot of my uh, uh, research over the years, I've run again and again into why most of us can't think actively about the stories we're embedded in. Uh, and I think there are probably quite strong psychological evolutionary reasons for that as well that we we need to believe in our shared story questioning it is is generally dangerous for the individual and the group so this this point where you can get a lot of people to the point where they can look at their stories and understand them through a, a cognitive an extra meta layer of of thought as well is very new for humanity that's a good point um yeah although i mean i guess I was thinking when you were talking about Socrates there, and it seems so much of what we're doing is is so much like that point in in much earlier history as well. Um, I think in terms of the good, like a lot of what we're doing in these superhero stories is the good of heroism and recovering that for that that large community of men um, who need that heroic aspect kind of resurrected. But then the deconstruction is is like what Socrates was saying about uh, the Iliad. You know, well, that's fine as a heroic myth, but look at how you manifest this mm -hmm. in the world, that the the unrestrained heroic personality is also dangerous uh, uh, and violent. Unless you take that heroism and and wed it to a larger 
a larger cause, basically, you get what the Athenians were, you know, kind of slave trading, right. uh, partying, heroic personalities who loved Achilles. Um, but we can't live in that way. So we have both of these things. We have the resurrection of the hero and then the critique of the hero at the same time. And they're both valid and we need them both. But the people who are doing them are in their own little sound chambers and and tribes at the moment and have their own needs. You know, a lot of a lot of the feminist critique of of superheroes is coming directly from the experience of male violence of a lot of women as well. So well, there's very sexualization of female superhero yeah. characters. You know, mm-hmm. it's 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 pretty absurd when you look back at some of the stuff in the '90s and the <laughs> like. You know, I think <laughs> of uh, you know Power Girl in DC. You know, yeah, it's like there's no practical purpose to a huge hole cut out right here just for the cleavage. Like the rest of the suit, <laughs> but you're going to have this. Superman's going to be fully covered right yeah. here, but you know, it's clearly done with a male gaze in mind. Yeah, but then but then it's very interesting that we have. Um, you know, a lot of female critics more on the conservative right or not on the conservative right, kind of liberal or progressive critics, but turning around and saying, you know, this, the kick-ass female superhero, that isn't actually what we need either. This isn't how women manifest heroism, uh, in, in the world. It was interesting for a while, but I think everyone is rejecting that now. And when Hollywood keeps presenting it it does look very flat mm. and um uh a, a bit cynical now actually but this is the complexity of the argument that i can find myself arguing back against my own side very quickly another area i'm wondering damien where sci-fi mm. and fantasy stories in particular i'm wondering if they're almost more attractive in our secular age, moving from the secular age into a post-secular age, Mm. because as Charles Taylor described it, we feel trapped in the imminent frame, a a frame Mm. of meaning making where meaning is only to be found in the imminent and in the material and what's right in front of us. But every so often, you know, a piece of beautiful music or literature or film comes along and to Taylor use this word haunting it, it haunts us to the possibility of transcendence that there may be more mm. meaning to be found outside of the imminent frame and I, I for me i think reflectively and i, I look back and I, i'm not as big of sci-fi buff as as you are um but i've always had this attraction just uh, i'm a trekkie i'm a star wars nerd uh, less so Lord of the Rings, DC Comics more than Marvel, but I've got hundreds of comics and graphic novels too as well. And as I look back just introspectively, I think for me, the thing that was most attractive to me about all of these stories was was the way that they would haunt me with the mm. sense that there's, there's more than the imminent. And I, I think in particular about um, Interstellar, Christopher mm. Nolan's Interstellar, which uh, for my money, I, th- I think that's Nolan's best work. And I can hear mm-hmm. other arguments, but to me, that's his magnum opus. And I think about the the bookshelf. Um, and you have this sort of malaise of the secular age that hangs over everybody, that, that blight of dust. And uh, Cooper 
is haunted by the the books falling off mm-hmm. her shelves and of course um of course her dad is encouraging her we'll just use science you know to figure it out but she's oh. haunted by it. and she does that and it's not to say science is at odds with discovering transcendence but there's something more there and um I think about sci-fi and fantasy in that way. I, I wonder for you, do you see though this genre as these genres, because they are there's some distinction obviously among them, is maybe that being another one of the huge draws of the genres, not just the, mm-hmm. the heroism that we can see in a, a story of a Luke Skywalker going on a hero's journey and ultimately reconciling with the father. Um, but there's something in these stories that usually takes us beyond the imminent frame. Mm. What are your thoughts yeah. on that? Uh, I use this term mythopathos. Uh, for, I've been using it for the last year, which is this the storytelling which achieves these two different modes, the mythic and the, the pathic storytelling. Uh, and one is about humanity and reality. So you know, maybe a movie like Chinatown, Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. Uh, the crime thriller is 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 quite pathic, and it looks at all the dark motivations of humanity. And at the end of that film, uh, Jack Nicholson is destroyed. The child he's trying to save is taken away by the child abuser. It's extremely dark, but there's a kind of reality in that. But we we just we can't deal with that reality very much. Or we don't we don't want to. I think about the earliest human storytellers, uh, and I think the earliest evidence we have is cave paintings. They go back like thirty thousand years, and you look at the stories they're telling there, and I interpret them as like the heroism of the hunter. Yes, it's the creation of the hunter. Yes, you know, young men, if you go forth and hunt for us and bring back the bison, but probably the stories they weren't telling was. You know, uh, Eric, who just got gored <laughs> by a bison. You know, Not putting that on the cave the guys wall. guys aren't going to turn up for that story <laughs> no. very much. So from the very beginning, there's an impetus for the, for the mythic to give us a story that is beyond the reality that we can achieve. So you can interpret that as, as made up, as fantasy, and that's very much what a lot of our culture does, or as... We can only have the hero hunter if we create them in stories, first of all. And I think this is what we're doing in myth. We're creating our highest potential before we're there. So at the moment in a movie like Interstellar, we're, we're talking about what is this space we've discovered. We've only known it's there for 100 years, really radio astronomy, the size of our galaxy and black holes. And we're trying to integrate all of this. And the storyteller kind of has the same choice. Like if I forget the name of the central character, if if Matthew McConaughey just yeah. dies in the vacuum of space at the end of the movie, uh, or if we tell the story of the generations of astronauts who who just die in space or get blown up or irradiated, that's not what we need from the story. Though we do have the factual account as well. We need some higher manifestation and that's what we're doing in interstellar is thinking about the possibilities of the transcendent in 
in our near right in our near future. grappling and with its love some is there some transcendent quality to love you know that yeah. seems to be yeah. one of the central questions is like we yeah. we've got the objective and we know that it's all just physics sure. right but is there something that could potentially yeah. transcend that I, i'm not ultimately satisfied with the answer at the end but it's grasping at the haunting yeah of the transcendent yeah, yeah. And there's so many layers of the mythic in there. You have Hans Zimmer's music, the cinematography. Yes, yes. Uh, you've got poetry in there as well. So it comes together all as a, a ritual, really. As, uh, very much like how I imagine the cave paintings of 25,000 years ago. We're basically doing the same mythic ritual of storytelling and music and transformation of the self through the experience mm. as and well. And there used to be the role of, if we go that far back, the role of the shaman, perhaps to mm. be the, the storyteller yep. in more recent times, we might say, especially in the West, it was the role of the church and people would come yeah. into enchanted spaces, mm -hmm. spaces that looked very yeah. distinct from the rest of the world. A, a beautiful cathedral mm. is very unique in that it's supposed to be carving out a, a slice of sacred space that people would walk into. And, um, you know, I, there's this, uh, there's this theory that, you know, I've sometimes jokingly called, uh, did the block, did blockbuster video kill church? And it comes mm -hmm. from, uh, a theologian, a cultural theologian at Fuller, Fuller Seminary, um, Robert K. Johnston. And, um, he's, he doesn't make a hard argument for it, but he kind of floats out this as just like a theory to think about where we actually see with the rise of the home video store. And uh, in the U.S., mm. it was Blockbuster Video. I don't know if it was Blockbuster Video was in the U.K. or not. But with the rise of the home video store, you actually see um, correlation in declines of church attendance. And so one of his theories was, I don't think we should rule out the possibility that people are going to Blockbuster, they're going to Hollywood, they're going to their theater for that sense of enchantment to be re-enchanted mm. And that maybe they don't feel the need to come to church anymore because what they're getting from Blockbuster Video seems to be doing a better job of that. It's always struck me as an interesting theory. I don't know if there's any way of falsifying it or proving it one way or another, but I find it fascinating. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've heard of that theory or not, but at first, first listen, what, what's, what's your response to that? Well, I, I agree with it. I fought yeah. through quite a lot of this at, at various times. Uh, I mean, I think if you wanted to, we have in across Europe, we have these great Gothic cathedrals, which you guys don't have in the Americas. You have more like the, the modern versions of them, I think. But these are amazing buildings and it's clear why they were built because they're still amazing 800 years later. Uh, and they're full of tourists all day, but then very few people go to the services in them, a declining number. Um, I don't know, maybe this is sacrilegious, but I would say if you wanted to pack out the service in a big cathedral, show Interstellar. That would be beautiful. Show the great sci-fi movie. <laughs> I'd be there. Interstellar in a Gothic cathedral, oh. great sound systems. Ha maybe and Hans Zimmer in a Gothic cathedral? Come on. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. Because <laughs> uh, we got to update the, the rituals and the stories, I think. Because it is... But it, the way I see it is that our, our modernist era 
is all about the logos is the manifestation of the logos really and it, it's had a an ideological mission to crush crush the mythos we don't need it anymore we don't need religion if we're going to have storytelling it's not going to be fantasy it's not going to be myth it's going to be serious social commentary mm. documentary storytelling yes. maybe uh, political and maybe the political, political sphere yeah. trumping the, the religious sphere yeah and then this was like at its most powerful i think when i was in my my youth but then you hit the point of star wars let's say although there's more to it and the mythos just explodes back into the world again because you can't contain it people want this transcendent story we have a deep need for it and it's just steamrolled much of the rest of contemporary culture everything is the mythos at the moment maybe to a slightly imbalanced way because we've gone too far back uh the other way and i think that's why it's necessary to reassess it not as entertainment but as some kind of spiritual religious experience and have this element of the conscious reworking of it as well because the mythos is all about the unconscious the emotions embodied felt experience which we really need but then you have to i think this is the value of the act of criticism you take all of that unconscious material you you drag it back up into the conscious realm where you can shape it to an extent have some control over it personally assess and then it let it sink too sink right back down again to assess, assess it, it as yeah. well what's the value right what what um <sighs> How would this story play out? This is like one of my questions I bring up sometimes when I talk to people that are just so gung ho on on psychedelics um, yeah. as like mm -hmm. a substitute for traditional religion. And I go, okay, get a bunch of people that just did ayahuasca together in a room and have them come up all together with a story they agree on that they can pass down to their children mm -hmm. and to their children's children that will build hospitals and universities and schools and orphanages. Mm -hmm. And so that's not to dismiss the possibility. And I don't rule out the possibility of, um, you know, the psychedelics opening people up to a state of consciousness where they actually become more aware of what I'd actually say is God. I'm not dis discounting that. But to me, the, the question is when we, you just maybe have pure mythos and it comes to you in this, like this, let's take it how it gets transmitted in a piece of music by Hans Zimmer. I mean, Hans Zimmer mm. just makes mythological music. I don't know if that's mm -hmm. appropriate to say, but it takes you somewhere. Um, and so these emotions, maybe even animalistic emotions rise up within you. And it's like, all right, but now we have to give this a shape, right? It has mm. to take a shape in a way that values, we can assess the values and go, the values that I feel are presented in this, is it true, good, and beautiful? Is it actually leading to the flourishing of my neighbor and the world mm. around me? Is it producing virtue? Is it true heroism? Is this actually a true heroic story? You mm. know? Um, and I think that's part of maybe even Socrates' critique of the gods of Homer. It was like, they're not virtuous. Z Zeus, we mm. can. So, is there a higher vision beyond Zeus? And that that takes bringing that out of maybe just the 
the instinctive, the um, the more you know, the more right hemisphere engagement with a piece of art and into okay, now mm. we we have to map this out, and that that that, that seems tricky, um, and that's mm -hmm. where I think hopefully people would have a little bit of grace on traditional religious institutions as flawed as they are, at least see how difficult of a job it is to somehow transmit sure. values and stories from generation to the next. Yeah, that's an interesting hook there. The, the, the anger at church, the church more than religion, I think is partly the anger at the mythos mm. as well at the, um, the, the worst crime, in a sense, is to to uh, hypocrisy. Yes, is to put forward the highest values and not fulfil them. Yes. and that's what the anger at the church is. I think very deeply, uh, very deeply felt. So that leads into all the difficult questions about because uh, I think about the kind of the story of virtue, mm. and um, then I think about uh, what's the superhero show at the Forgotten the name of it at the moment with the kind of ultra violent superheroes oh the boys the boys yeah yeah i did a critique of the boys basically saying actually that it didn't make it back to a point of virtue and so many people were saying to me i don't want to go to a point of virtue i reject virtue i like the uh the cynicism i don't believe there's any virtue uh in the world there's only this contest for power that I see between people. And that's a very powerful counter story in our society at the moment. It's, it is. And it's, it might be, mm. it might be the most powerful counterclaim. Mm. Yeah. Um, to be honest, it's one that even as someone who's studied theology and I have given myself and my living to helping people in this particular mm. Christian story and Christian community, to me, it is the most compelling counter argument. It's, it's, mm. it's really like at the end of the day. So there's this picture in the, in the last book of the Bible revelation, which people get all sorts of weird, stupid stuff about. But if you read it in the, in the first century, it would have made sense to you. It would have been reading like reading a comic book. You know, the genre of literature was apocalyptic writing and everybody understood how mm. apocalyptic writing worked in the first century. We just don't get it today. Anyways, there's this picture of John the Revelator, and he's looking out, and this, the story of history is about to come to its completion. And, and there's a sense of anguish because he goes, there's no one worthy to actually finish this story and to do it justice. Mm. I'm paraphrasing here a little bit liberally. And then he looks on the throne, and he sees a slain lamb. And... I look at that, Damien, and I go, okay, the story I'm attempting to live in is one that's quite absurd. And I recognize that, that the, the victorious, um, the, the, the victor, the one who sits enthroned over the cosmos is a slain lamb. Hmm. And the alternative story is one that I think it's a Nietzschean critique, right? It's like at what, mm. and it is to me why Nietzsche is 
is the most compelling atheist. Dawkins, mm-hmm. the new atheists were like, I mean, they're like kindergartners compared to Nietzsche. I mean, Nietzsche is so stinking mm-hmm. brilliant. It, it, he's mm-hmm. my favorite yeah. to read. And that's so weird to say, <laughs> because that is a story when I, I couldn't, I watched a few episodes of the boys and it's that sort of stuff where I go, I, I may, I hope this story isn't true. I don't, mm. cause if it is, it might be a weird thing to say, but God help us all. If this story is true. You know, yeah. there is no virtue to pursue. It's just power. You know, if, if it's mm. just, if we're just, it's just the law of the jungle, a nature that's red in tooth and claw. Mm. That's frightening, you know, but it also, I acknowledge it's, it's probably the most tempting isn't the right thing. It's tempting in the sense that we'll get into like Star Wars here. Tempting in a way that the Jedi are tempted by Sith knowledge, mm-hmm. you know, where you go, yeah. this just might be more effective. You know, so my daughter's watching mm-hmm. Rebels and Ezra has a Sith holocron, you know, at some point in the story. And he's actually been taking knowledge from the Sith holocron and it's actually helping him win battles. And of course, his mm-hmm. his master Kanan is warning him against this. He's like, you can't do this. But for Ezra, it's not an attraction to evil. It's an attraction to like usefulness and utilitarianism. Mm, and I think yeah. there's there's a real competition for me, Damien, in these in these stories. And I'm not saying that it's either, you know, this mm. this Christian story or else. I, I I very much would like to live in a pluralistic context where people who are earnestly seeking the truth and maybe have disagreements on that can have dialogues like what we're experiencing now. Mm. But when I see a story of the boys, I go, this is not for all the valid critiques, Homelander. What a critique of like American conservative, you know, God and country evangelical. I mean, there's a scene and it ripped me apart where Homelander Mm. and the season one goes to one of these Christian you know, rallies, conferences. I don't know if you've seen the scene. And aside from superheroes being there and some other outrageous stuff, I'm like, this is pretty spot on, you know? Mm. So the critiques are valid. But for me, at some point, you have to move beyond deconstructing and you actually have to start building a house for people to live in. Yeah. Absolutely. That's, um, there's a a moment of, a bit later in the boys, I think it was the last season and he, uh, you see like how evil actually emerges in the world. Cause he loses his temper and he, he laser eyes, some dude, some woke dude in the audience and completely kills him. And he's never killed someone in public before until that point, uh, who wasn't like a, an evil criminal. Uh, and there's this moment of quiet and then the audience start cheering him for doing it. and it's this combination of taking the power and being socially approved for it and that's that's the hitler moment that's the mob is cheering you on as well and humans can do anything in that in that moment so it's powerful that it goes there but my question about the boys has always been is it going there as a critique or because it enjoys it yeah basically yeah it feels a little sadomasochistic to me 
mm-hmm. like the yeah. enjoyment of being in that. And that, that to me is, uh, feels a little bit more like uh, the dark side than it does the light. Yeah, <laughs> Could you give it, um, maybe listeners, Damien, um, who maybe like me, you know, I'm I like Star Trek, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings. I've got that stuff down, you know, people that go, all right, I'm into this stuff. I don't know where else to go to see true storytelling mm. like you're talking about that maybe invites people into the what did you call it the mythopathic the mythopathos yeah what's that phrase the again mythopathos yeah. yeah it invites people into that and also offers them perhaps uh, while there might be valid critiques like what you see as affording people a a structure that encourages the pursuit of virtue or encourages a pursuit mm. of the true the good and the beautiful what do you see right now whether it's um, books, television, movies, do you have any recommendations for things that might be outside of those kind of big three? Sure. Um, there's there's no hidden great thing that nobody has found. Uh, I'm sometimes controversial in my, my criticism that, of course, in communities, we all want to support each other in the in the community so like in in the science fiction writing world there's a general level of every time a new writer appears a kind of applause for them but great storytelling is very rare and great mythic storytelling is even rarer i think so the things when they appear they shoot up into the the public consciousness so i think of what we have at the moment that andor and house of the dragon have done particularly important things in this kind of mythopathic model that I'm talking about. Uh, Kindred was a bit neglected, which is based on an Octavia Butler novel, because uh, it came out from a, a like a low FX streaming platform that oh, not okay. many people watch. Um, so I would recommend that as well. I think that came in like four or five of my top 22 of the year. Can you give a little synopsis would... of what that's about? I'm not familiar with it. Uh, it's it's a young African American woman who is time slipping between her contemporary life and uh the life kind of of her ancestors on a slave plantation, but mm. it's actually a bit more complicated than that. Um but it's made by a contemporary playwright, so it has a lot of the atmosphere of a of a theatrical production as well. But what I would actually say to people is for science fiction particularly, go back to the books and literature from the 60s and 70s when science fiction was in this kind of rebellious state of of flux. It was turning from the golden age of celebrating rocket ships into space and heroic scientific creators into a more kind of uh, uh, countercultural space so writers like samuel delaney uh ursula quay le guin um jg ballard in the uk who isn't very much read now but his stuff is super relevant to where we actually are today as a culture um i won't go into too much more of of why but i would read particularly delaney and ballard great uh if you haven't read them uh, not for virtue storytelling at all. That's not where they are, mm. actually, but for for critique of 
our culture wars more than anything and how our um our culture is driven by by narratives that can fall apart and shift very quickly around us which i think is the thing that everybody is emerging into at the same time i think what's quite interesting in like the conservative mythic space even when it is that it's more uh pathological in kind of the hatred of the postmodern and feminism and so on uh is there's this innate awareness or it's kind of implicit that there is a story and we're all embedded in the story together and there's a kind of a fight for the story so at the moment even if you hate postmodernism I see this in someone like Jordan Peterson. We're all kind of becoming postmodern at the same. And he is very much. He's more so time, than he's aware yeah. of. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I think look at those writers who were pre prefiguring. That would mm. be my advice for some very interesting reading at the moment. Awesome. You gave me some new uh, stuff to check out. <laughs> Thank you for uh, inviting me on for this. I'm going to have to to go at the moment, but I wanted to to say because we had discussed the possibilities of uh, collaboration that this open question about the the Nietzschean critique of virtue versus the need for virtue. There seems like there's something in there that neither of us can answer, mm -hmm. so it might be an interesting. I'd love to do that, Damien. Well, thank you again for your time. I'm going to put a link yeah. in the description here to get all of you connected to check out more of Damien's work, his podcast, his courses. You can check that out on his website as well and his YouTube channel. Uh, the, the stuff you've been producing on your YouTube channel as of late, Damien's really great. Good to see that it's starting to get some traction. Seems like you have to feed yeah. the algorithm in order to keep the algorithm happy. It's, it's probably hard to keep producing I am content. having to to make some compromises for the algorithm but <laughs> i think ultimately the algorithm is just the people yeah. kind of manifested through the google monetization uh form so yeah it's a good lesson as someone who's worked in communication basically my whole career it's kind of a, it's a bit i feel a bit nietzschean about it actually i'm determined to defeat the algorithm you'll be the uber uh, man pulled out my heroic yeah, to be the Uberman yeah. of, of YouTube. That's yeah. awesome. That, that should be your new bio, the Uberman of YouTube. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you found it insightful, helpful to you in some way. Obviously, right now, you're just on the listening end of the conversation, but you don't just have to be on the listening and receiving end. I'd love to actually hear back from you, the things that you agreed with, the things you disagreed with, insights you had as you were listening, all of that stuff. And so there's several different ways you can go about doing that. One of which is by becoming a supporter on Patreon and then getting plugged into our discussion forums. So we do have the opportunity where you can just like maybe a Facebook post or something, you can post comments on this particular episode uh, right there on my Patreon page and you can interact with other listeners from around the world. There's also the Deep Talks Discord server. So if you've used Discord for other groups, online communities, or maybe even for gaming, you're familiar with how Discord works. It's essentially like its own internal social media network or like a really, really large group chat. And so if you're a supporter on Patreon at any level, you can get access to that and have conversations with me and, and other listeners from all over. 
And um, there's some really good stuff happening there. You know, people sharing their own work, uh, which is really cool to see. I, I, people have shared photos of their their gardens, YouTube channels that they're working on, um, places where they are writing as well. And that that's the sort of stuff I, I'd love to see happen. And um, anyway, so you can get involved there. You can also reach out to me on Twitter or on Instagram if you just want to throw out a question or a comment. Um, and I do my best to try to respond to those as well. And that, that makes this so much more fun <laughs> is when I get to hear back from you and then we get to actually have some dialogue, not just with me, but if you want to dialogue with others who have been listening to these episodes as well. Um, another forum where that happens is in our pretty regular, I want to say monthly, but they're, they're not always monthly, but close to monthly uh, live Q&A and discussions that happen on Zoom. And that's for people who sign up on the Theology 201 level or higher. So in fact, even just this past week, we had a really great conversation with some of the guys that are in that particular group. And we talked about Interstellar. We talked about what Damien had brought up, this sort of challenge that he thinks churches throughout the West would probably be filled if they just played Hans Zimmer's music and maybe showed some scenes from Interstellar, the, 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 the beauty of that, the poetry of that. And so we had a really fascinating conversation together about that, which dovetailed into a whole bunch of other subjects about arts and the church. And so, man, I just love those conversations. And um, anyways, you can participate in those too as well if you'd like. You can click on the link in the description below to find out more about all this, these perks and bonus things that I like to try to offer for those of you who are supporting and keeping this podcast afloat. I want to give an extra special thanks to supporters at uh, the Theology 201 level or higher. People like Clint, Jesse, Alex, BJ, Daniel, Dave, Eli, Elise, Garth, Jesse, John Mark, Johnny, Josie, Justin, Kirk, Lola, Luke H., Matthew, Michael Hernstein, Paul Reese, Rob, Sam P. Thank you guys for your generous support. I can't do this without you. Uh, next week, we're coming back with a brand new guest, another brand new guest, another international guest, this time from New Zealand, Strawn Coleman, author of a new book called Beholding. He runs the Instagram account Commoners Communion. He is a singer-songwriter, award-winning singer-songwriter. He's an author. He is a kind of like an ancient future Christian mystic. Uh, and I love this guy. It was such a great uh, conversation. Just awesome opportunity to get to know Strawn. We've got so many points of similarity in our journey. So check that out next week. And uh, that'll be part five in this series, A Quest for Meaning as a Spiritual Species. So be on the lookout for that next week. All right. Well, until next time, we will talk again soon.